You're listening to audio from Hardin Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit hardinbaptist.org. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you turn there, I want you to think about the last time you had to send a text message to a friend who was going through a trial in their life. I don't know what exactly the situation was, but you had a friend and you just knew they had a bad day, bad week, bad month, bad year, whatever it is, and you had to send them a text. You knew they were going through some suffering. Maybe they had the stomach bug and their whole family had it all week, and you're like, I just need to give them some encouragement that they're going to make it through. Um, maybe they lost a loved one. Maybe they lost a job. Maybe they were wanting something and it didn't happen. Or you just, you just knew, like, it's just been a rough day. It's been a rough week. And, and you, in the midst of their suffering, you decided to give them a text. You decided to just reach out by text to tell them something. I want you to think back to what did you do? What did you say? How did you start that conversation? And was there perhaps a moment where you got your phone out and you're thinking about that person because you love them and you want to help them, you want to give them some hope, and you opened up your phone, you got their name, you started the message, and you weren't exactly sure what to write. Because maybe it's something that you haven't been through. It's something you couldn't even imagine going through, and you're like, I'm not sure what to say. And it probably took you a little bit to find the words of, What exactly do you say to someone who's going through suffering to give them hope? And maybe you've been on the other side of that text message. Maybe you've been going through some stuff and someone's reached out to you and they had the trouble to find the words to say to you because, man, it's just really hard to know what to do in difficult situations. Well, here we're going to read a letter from Peter and he's writing this letter probably around 62 AD, scholars will say, and This is during um, more than likely a time of Nero. And so things aren't going super well for Christians in this part of the world. And here these people are exiles. They're uh, they're not in like their homeland where everything's great. That They're exiles and we're going to see this later. They're going to be under some persecution and things are not going to be great. And um, more than likely the the great fire uh, hasn't happened yet where Nero like systematically goes after the Christians. But... There's definitely not a love towards Christians just from government and culture. I remember when I got to spend some time in Rome, we got to visit Nero's house. And as we're at Nero's house, they'd actually excavated the floor to like the actual floor that he would have stood on. And I remember just kind of being in that moment thinking about, you're just in the midst of pure evil. Because Nero was a terrible, evil man. He would throw these parties at his house. And history will tell us that, that he would line up um, these fields for a party. And in order to put lanterns out, he would put Christians on poles and set them on fire. That was how he would put lanterns on for his parties that he would have for his friends. I mean, not, not really at the point of this letter, but just in a little bit. Like Nero's really going to go after the Christians. Things are going to get really, really hard And so you have Christians who are living in a place and time where persecution is, it's happening pretty vividly. So what do you say in a letter to people who are going through some really difficult times? Well, what Peter is going to start off with is probably not the place we would start if we're texting a friend. 
We'd probably start off with, I'm praying for you. How can I help you? What do I need to do? Peter doesn't start with that. He starts out with worship God. Praise God. That's where he starts. Like he wants these people in suffering, in the midst of what's happening, he wants them to praise God. And the reason he wants them to praise God is because of what God has done, what God will do, and what God is doing. And so what we're going to see as we open up this letter is we want to be people that praise God for what he has done, for what he will do, and for what he is doing right now. That in the midst of our suffering, our good days or bad days, we are called to remember what God has done for us, what he is going to do for us, and what he is currently doing right now in the moment, even in the moments of our suffering. And what we're going to be called to is worship. We're going to be called to, because in the middle of suffering, you know what we really need? We need the Savior. In our suffering, we need the Savior. And it's worship that leads us to the Savior. So if you would, uh, in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, if you don't have your Bibles, the words will be on the screen. Uh, If you would stand out of reverence for the Word of God, we're going to read this first verse, which is in verse 3. And then we'll walk through the rest of the text of Scripture together. Here's what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that that would be our heart, that we would be led to worship you during this time and all throughout our week, that worshiping you would set us and form us and hold us and keep us, that no matter what we're going through, we would praise you and bless you and worship you because of what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. We pray this in the good name of Christ. Amen. You guys may be seated. So the first set of verses, verse 3, is really going to talk about what God has done. And what God has done is he's given us new life. So what we're going to do is we're going to praise God for our new life. So that's kind of this first step is we're going to praise God for our new life. Notice back with me it says, blessed be the God. Of our, of our Father, Lord, Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're, so we're blessing God. What does that mean to bless God? Well, some translations will say praise be to God. That, that's what it is. It's a worship term that we're blessing God. We're giving him credit. We're giving him worth. We're speaking. We're exalting. We're eulogizing. We're saying how great God is. We want to bless him. We want to worship him. We want to praise him. So the first thing we're going to praise God for is for what he's done. So let's just think about what God has done for us. Like as we are, if you're a believer, God has done something great in your life. Primarily, he's given you life. So let's just think about what he's done. So notice, Peter qualifies it. It's this. What he's about to do, it's according to his great mercy. So the thing that God is going to do, which is going to be giving you new life, it's according to his great mercy. Now, we often think about salvation is by grace, and that is true. Meaning it's unmerited favor. It's something you don't deserve, but it's something he gives you. You didn't earn it, but he gave it to you. Mercy is a little bit different. Mercy is about compassion and pity. It's about doing to someone what they can't do for themselves. Like if you think about mercy ministries, 
right? Mercy ministries are, let's say, a mercy ministry towards the homeless. Well, the homeless can't help themselves. They don't have a home. They don't have means. So a mercy ministry might set up a tent with cots and feed homeless people because there's a compassion element. There's a pity element. They can't help themselves, so we're going to come and we're going to help them. We're going to give them mercy. So here we see that God's salvation to us, this new life, comes to us by mercy. It's we were people who couldn't help ourselves. We were people who couldn't give ourselves life. We couldn't redeem ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. We were in a helpless place, so the God who can did for those who can't. Like, that's the good news of the gospel. God showed compassion to a people who couldn't help ourselves, and he is going to give us new life. So it's according to his great mercy. Notice what he did. He has caused us to be born again. I mean, notice that statement. He, that's God, has caused us to be born again. Notice who Peter puts in the driver's seat of this new birth. It's not you, it's not me. Like, just like the same is true in your physical birth. Like, were you in the driver's seat of your physical birth? Did you, like, show up to your parents and, like, hey, um, on this day I would love to be born, so I'm going to go ahead and give you the day, and I'm going I'm to be kind of in control of this, and I'm going to tell you guys what to do, and then we're going to make this thing happen. You weren't in the driver's seat, right? It's something that happened to you, right? You didn't even know about it until like probably a year or two later, right? You're just like, I don't even know what's happening in my world. You just woke up to the idea of like, I'm a human being, and this is nothing that I did. Someone did it to me. Your parents caused you to be born. And so here Peter is saying, hey, God caused you to be born again. So he's saying, hey, I know, you're ele- I know you're exiles, I know you're wondering, I know that not everybody loves you, but God loves you. He elected you, he chose you, he caused you to be born. He initiated your salvation. This is something that he did for you, you didn't do it for yourself. And think about that term, born again. I mean, you have Peter, who's a disciple of Jesus. I can imagine Peter got this from Jesus. Remember that encounter in John 3, when Nicodemus basically wants to know, like, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus is like, um, if you want to get to heaven, you have to be born again. And he kind of flips out, like, how, how does that work? Like, do I go back into my mother's womb? How does this happen? And he says, no, this is a spirit thing through faith in me. That for all who believe in me, John three sixteen will have eternal life. They'll receive that new birth. But think about new birth. It implies this new family. Like, when you are born by God, you're into a new family. You're in the family of God. Like, you get new brothers and sisters. You get new identity. Other metaphors in the Bible would speak about that we are made new, according to Paul in Corinthians. The Old Testament would talk about we get a new heart and a new spirit. Stone heart's gone. Flesh heart comes in. That we're actually made new. And Peter is bringing that imagery up that, hey, guess what? You've been born again by God. So something that God did to you, but it had a dramatic change in you. That's why salvation, it's not a little thing. Salvation is a supernatural thing. Salvation is something that God does to you and it changes you. It gives you new birth, new heart, new life, new family. So he's trying to remind people who are suffering, hey, I know you're exiles, but you're also part of the family of God because of God. 
You have a father who loved you and adopted you and birthed you into his kingdom family. So in the midst of being exiles, rejoice in your identity of the family of God. So notice, you have been born again. This is something that God did to you. And notice, your new birth, it leads to some things. The first thing it leads to is this, to a living hope. Your new birth leads to a living hope hope. I mean, just think about that, that word, a living hope. No, it doesn't just say it leads to hope. I mean, hope would be good. If it led to hope, that would be great. But hope is only good in what it hopes in. And at the end of the day, if you're hoping in anything other than Jesus, eventually that hope, it's going to wear out. Eventually that hope is going to die. Eventually that hope is going to be a dead hope because all things have a expiration date. All things have a grave appointment. All things are going to perish and pass away. So whatever you hope in other than Jesus, it's a dead hope when you think about eternity. But if you're hoping in Jesus, it's a living hope because Christ is alive. Christ is living. Christ lives forever. So we are reborn to a living hope. And think about that idea of living is the opposite of dead. Like it's living, it's active, it moves, it does, it pulls you, it propels you, it takes you. Like this is a hope that's not just stagnant, it's dynamic. It is a living hope that we're people not just with hope, but living hope. Forever living hope because we've been reborn into a new kingdom. And notice what this living hope comes through. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have a living hope. Well, how is it a living hope? Because there's been a resurrection. And you know what the resurrection did? The resurrection killed death. The reason our hope is living is because death has been defeated. When Christ rose from the dead, that means that our salvation, it is alive, it is resurrected, it is going to be a forever life with God. And I want you to think about for a moment. This is Peter talking about our new birth, our living hope that is brought to us through the resurrection of Christ. I want you to think for a moment how the resurrection changed Peter's life. I mean, Peter's a guy that understood the resurrection because Peter's a follower of Jesus. He's one of like the inner three, really close to Jesus. And he's been walking with him and he said things like, hey, Jesus, I'm never gonna leave you. I'm never gonna forsake you. I'll be there right to the end. If you die, I'm dying. And Jesus is like, nope, you're gonna deny me three times. Like, never, I, 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 I've got you, I've got your back. And then you remember the story about when Jesus is put on trial, and Peter's like, hmm, this is getting a little real. Like, I think he's really about to die, and I don't know that I want to die. I mean, I said that, but I'm not sure now. And so Peter, he's like close enough where he can see Jesus, but far enough away where he's not associated with Jesus, and he's warming himself by a fire. He's just like, I'm just going to keep my eye out, and I'm going to jump in whenever the time is, but I'm just warming myself by this fire. And then you remember the scene, this little girl comes up to him, like, grown man Peter, little girl walks up, tugs on his britches, like, hey, aren't you a friend of him? So you got Peter, grown man, little girl asking you about Jesus. And you said, I'll stand, I'll, I'll die for this guy. Peter denies Jesus in front of a little girl. 
Like, no, I don't know him. I know, no, I don't know him. And then they like impress, like, no, I think you know him. And Peter actually starts cursing and like walks away. That's Peter. Bold Peter, who when a little girl comes up to him, he can't even stand for Jesus in Jesus' darkest hour. And of course, you know the story, the rooster crows three times and Peter realizes I failed and I'm walking away and Jesus goes to a cross, he dies, he's put in a tomb. And can you imagine like those, those three days of Peter just in agony and I didn't do it, I, I lost, I'm not courageous, I'm a coward. Like, but then all of a sudden some girls run and grab Peter and say, hey, he's not in the grave anymore. He's risen from the dead. And Peter runs and sees the tomb and then eventually meets face-to-face with the risen Jesus. He sees him. Forty days he's with him. Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. He sees the resurrection. He sees Christ risen from the dead. And then Peter, the guy who was afraid of a little girl who said, hey, do you know him? Peter stands up at the day of Pentecost and preaches to thousands of people and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ because Peter says, here I stand and Christ is king. In the midst of knowing, like, death is coming to me because you just crucified him. You're going to crucify me because I stand with him, and I don't care. Peter would get beat up, and he would say, hey, keep beating me up, keep him in prison. All I can say is I'm going to keep talking about Jesus. The Bible doesn't close on how Peter died, but history would tell us that Peter was martyred, and they were going to crucify him, and Peter actually requested to be crucified upside down, which had been even more horrific, but he didn't want to be, he was not even worthy to be crucified like his Lord. Let me be crucified upside down. So how in the world do you get Peter, who's afraid of a girl before the crucifixion, grown man, little girl, and then after the resurrection, he stands before all the powers to be and says, hey, Jesus is king, do it with me with what you want. Let's go. It's the resurrection event. The resurrection changed Peter's life. So he's writing to us saying, hey, guess what? The resurrection changes things. The resurrection moves things. It breaks things. It does things. It creates things in you and me. So he's writing to people to say, hey, you have a living hope. You have a new birth, and it's brought to you by the resurrection of Christ. Christ has risen from the dead, and that changes everything. I know you're suffering, I know it's hard, but Christ has risen from the dead. Think about what he has done and praise God. Bless God. I love what N.T. Wright says about the resurrection. He says, new life has come to birth within us because a new life has come to birth in the world in the resurrection from the dead of Jesus the Messiah. Becoming a Christian means that what God did For Jesus at Easter, he does for you in the very depth of your being. That what God did to Christ at Easter raised him from the dead. That's what God has done for you in the depth of your being. He has risen you from your death and sin. He's raised you to new life. You've been born again. You have a living hope. You've been risen from the dead. So what does he want us to do? He wants us to praise God for that. Praise God for what he's done. So let's go back to the scripture real quick. And I just wanted just a moment of response. And here's the moment. Can we go back to those verses? Just put them on the screen. Just look at the verses. And I want you to take 30 seconds and do what Peter says. Just praise God for those words. Just read them back 
and just in silence in your heart or out loud, whatever you want to do, just praise God for a moment because of what he's done for you in Christ. Now for Peter, he's going to switch our praise, not to what God has done. I mean, new birth, new life, resurrection, living hope. Like those cause worship in your heart. Those cause explosions in your heart for how good God is. But it's not just what he's done. It's what he will do in the future. Notice he's going to take us down another. So we've, we've seen what he's done. He has saved us. We praise him for the life he's given us. But now what he is going to do, we're going to praise him for what's happening into the future. We're going to praise him for the inheritance that is coming to us. So notice with me in 1 Peter, if you look at verse 4, it says this, to an inheritance. So we've been born again to a living hope. Now we've been born again to an inheritance. So the first was what God has done. This is what God will do into the future. So he's going to say we've been born again to an inheritance. And he's going to tell us what the inheritance is, but we're not going to get into it quite yet. I just want to think about that idea of an inheritance. Now when I hear the word inheritance, I automatically think about national treasure. Now, the reason I do so is because for the past two weeks, we've been watching, we watch both movies, and I watch a little TV show, National Treasure, and so, like, my whole house is into, like, treasure hunting and finding gold, and I think, like, my kids are looking for clues in our attic if we have hidden gold anywhere, but, like, we're just kind of in that, like, I want to find some gold and treasure, and this idea of inheritance, that's what I conjure in my mind, gold, money, um, just that's like inheritance to me. Like I hope one day I just get a bunch of gold in inheritance. Like that'd be really cool, right? So when I think about inheritance, okay, God's going to give us a bunch of gold one day. He's going to give us a bunch of money one day. It's going to kind of set us up for life. That's what most of us probably in the West think about when think about inheritance. Well, how much money are my parents going to leave me? That's my inheritance. Like when, when grandparent, how much money do I have coming to me? But, but for Peter, he chose that word inheritance and that word that he chose for inheritance, if you look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, he uses that same word that's always pointing to the inheritance of land, the inheritance of Canaan. Think about the Old Testament. To the Old Testament people, their inheritance from God, it's land, it's Canaan. I've promised you an inheritance. I've promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be great. You're going to be in this land. You're going to be my people. So, for Peter, he's choosing a word that seems to imply and point to Canaan. And a lot of the exiles' believers would have been Gentiles, but a lot of them would have been Jews too. So they would have caught the imagery of, oh, this inheritance that God is giving us that we're reborn for. It's a place. It's a, it's a land. It's that inheritance that our forefathers had. It's Canaan. We, we get that. But they're, it's ironic because they're exiles. They're wandering around. They don't, they don't have a land that's their own. 
They're not in the land of Canaan anymore. They are exiles. They're spread out. They're in modern-day Turkey now. They, they're not in charge of where they're at anymore. And so here he's writing to a people that don't have a place to say there's inheritance coming. A place is coming for you. Something is coming for you. And they could automatically go back to that inheritance and think, well, we once had it, but it got taken away. So is there a chance that this new inheritance is going to be taken away too? So he modifies it in a few ways. Notice this, that you've been reborn to an inheritance that is imperishable. So the first thing we notice about this inheritance, it's imperishable. In other words, it's not going to perish. It's not going to die. It's not going to be corrupted. Now, now for them, if you think about that land, that, that word imperishable can also mean invaded by armies and taken over. And, of course, that's exactly what happened to the people in the Old Testament. They had Canaan, and then here comes the Assyrians, here come the Babylonians. They're taking us. They're ravaging our land. They're taking our inheritance. Now we have no inheritance. So, okay, Peter, to this new inheritance, is there an army that can come and take it away from us? And he's saying, no, because it's imperishable. It's impenetrable. No one can come. No army can come and take this from you. But not only is it imperishable, it's also undefiled. Now, why is that important? We think about Canaan. You know what happened to Canaan? It got defiled. And it wasn't God's fault. It was the people's fault. Because the people didn't worship the one true God. They worshiped idols. They set up idols. They did child sacrifices in the promised land. They would run after other gods, and they would break all sorts of commandments and do what all the world did. They lived as pagans in light of being God's people. They defiled the land, and they are the ones that caused themselves to become exiles because of God's judgment, but judgment was also hope. And so here's this question of, well, is, could we defile this inheritance? I mean, I know we're reborn, but when we get it, can we mess this thing up again? I mean, I get that question a lot, like, hey, when we like go to heaven, can we mess this thing up again? Like, what if we eat like another apple and it's the wrong one? Like, can we mess this thing up again? And the answer is no, it can't be defiled. This new inheritance, you are not able to mess it up. And I'll not be you, but that's good news to me because you give me something that's really good, I'm going to find a way to probably mess it up. You give me long enough, right? Like, I mean, oh, thanks God for this perfect holy thing. Um, why'd you give it to me? I'm going to mess this thing up. But God is saying this inheritance is coming to you. It's undefiled. You can't mess it up because I'm keeping it holy. I'm keeping it good. I'm keeping it perfect. But it's not only undefiled, it's also unfading. See, even, even Canaan... At some point, it's going to fade because all things fade. All grass withers. All flowers fade away. Whatever we have on this earth that we hold in this precious, eventually it's going to not last forever. Eventually it's going to fade away. And he says, but the inheritance is coming to you. It won't fade. It actually just gets better and better the longer you have it. It is unfading. Not only is it unfading, but it's really safe. I'll just give you an example. He says, kept in heaven. So your inheritance, it's actually kept in heaven. Now, if you think about like having something precious that's coming to you, let's say you have something precious and you want to give it to your grandkids when you die, what if it's really valuable? Like, where do you keep it? What if people want to break in and steal it? How do you keep it safe? So I looked up, like, what's the most safe location on planet Earth? And most would agree it's Fort Knox. 
Like, if you want a kids unsafe, put it in Fort Knox. And so this is according to the internet, so we'll just play at that. But here's what the internet says. Planning on breaking into Fort Knox? Question mark. By the way, this is not a good idea. So <laughs> you should just plan something else, like a vacation. Don't plan this. But if you do, first, climb the four surrounding fences, two of which are electric, and then sneak past the armed guards lining the perimeter. Be sure to avoid the video cameras, but don't waste time trying to blast through the granite walls. They are four feet thick and held together by 75, or, uh, 750 tons of reinforced steel. If you get past the armed guards inside, plus the maze of locked doors, you'll probably be stopped by a 22-ton vaulted door. Don't despair. The vault can be open, but only if you find all the staff members who know a small piece of the combination. You'll need them all since no one knows the whole thing. Once you get inside the vault, you'll have to break into the smaller vaults tucked inside. Then you can start to take out the the 5,000 tons of gold bullion stored in there. And be careful when you leave. Because 30,000 soldiers from Fort Knox military camp will be anxiously waiting for you outside. (laughs) So if you got plans like, hey, hmm, Fort Knox has gold. I'm going to get in that. Uh, No. It is, it's If it's kept in Fort Knox, it's going to stay in Fort Knox. But I know what you're thinking. I've seen Ocean's Eleven. (laughs) Hmm. I know there's a way, if there's a will. So possibly we might could get into Fort Knox. So, all right, Peter, we got this inheritance. It's all good. But what if somebody takes it from us? He says, oh, I didn't tell you. It's kept in heaven. Like, good luck getting there and getting that, right? Like, it is a safe location, let's just say that. It is kept in heaven, right? No one is going to get this. It is in a secure location. So if you're an exile who's thinking, well, maybe somebody's going to steal this from me. They're not. It's kept in heaven. And notice, it's not just an inheritance in general. It's a personal inheritance. Notice it doesn't right after that. For you, who? So it's an inheritance that's actually for you that you are to receive this inheritance. It's not just like there's a big inheritance somewhere that's coming to some Christians and you kind of get a part of that. It is a personal inheritance that has your name on it. It is, you are the you and the who. This inheritance is kept in heaven, undefiled, unfading, imperishable. And it's for you. If you're a born-again Christian, your name is on that inheritance. And God is keeping it in heaven, safeguarded for you. But it's not just personal. It's not just for you and kept in heaven, but it's being guarded by God. Like, just notice what he says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So you think about like all the treasures, I mean, Fort Knox, there's a lot of guarding there. Think about stories, like I love Lord of the Rings, like the Hobbit, like this big gold, and there's like Smog the dragon who's guarding the gold. If you got gold and a dragon's guarding it that can breathe fire, like that's a pretty good protection. Like I'm not going to bother your gold if you have a dragon. But the hobbits, they get around him and they, they kill him, get the gold. There's always a loophole because whoever is guarding, like you play the flute route, they fall asleep. Right? Like it's always, there's this, there's this back door, there's a sneaky way you can outsmart the guard. Your inheritance, it's in heaven, and God's like, mm, you want through? You got to get through me. 
Like God is the guard. So is anybody getting your inheritance? The answer is no. It's in heaven and God's guarding it. He's not just guarding like the inheritance. He is guarding you and the inheritance. It's this guarding of this, this both. Notice the text says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So the idea is not just like that, that you're being guarded and the inheritance is being guarded. It's like both and. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, the inheritance, it's kept for you and you are kept for the inheritance. It's like both of those ways. God is keeping the inheritance for you and he's keeping you for the inheritance. Like he is guarding you by his power through faith. Now, how does that work? Well, you've put your faith and trust in Christ. You've believed in God. And because of faith, you've put your inheritance into Fort Knox. You've entrusted your life to God. And God's saying, hey, I've got this now. So now God is guarding the inheritance. And he's also guarding you. It's kept in heaven. And he's the guard. And it is going to be yours when it is revealed. And notice, this inheritance, it is for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So his inheritance being guarded is for a salvation, ready to reveal it the last time. What, what does this mean? So here's what Peter's doing. He's linking inheritance to salvation. So what is inheritance? Is it gold money? Is it land? Is it Canaan? What is it? Salvation in the biggest sense, inheritance in the biggest sense, is your full and final salvation. That is your inheritance. Your inheritance, dear Christian, is God himself. That when God comes, you get the inheritance, which is life with God, place with God, life under God, in relationship with God. Our inheritance is God. And it's protected and it's kept for you at the last time. When Jesus Christ is revealed, your full and final salvation will be revealed. The toll and the struggle with sin will be over and you will be with God forever and ever. And that is a sure and done deal because God is guarding the inheritance and he's guarding you. And no one's getting past God. It's kept in heaven. He's a big guard. He's got you. So Peter's trying to write to people who are struggling who are trying to figure out how to live life and do we, how do we stay and how do we go? And he said, hey, don't worry. God's got you. What he did for you is cause you to be reborn into a new kingdom, new life, new hope that's living. And not only does he have you right now, he has you all the way into the future. And when he comes back, you're gonna have the full and final salvation. So when you're suffering, think about what God has done and what God will do. That that, that roots us and keeps us. That in the midst of right now, it is tough. Here's what God has done, and here's what God is doing. So I can live in this moment thinking about the past and the future. That God is a good God, and he has me. But not only do we praise God for the past and for the future, what he has done and what he will do. But we also praise God for what he is doing. Like right now. In the context of the letter, that right now is, what's the suffering? So we're going to see the next set of verses is what God is doing. And what God is doing is in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our struggles, he is working in us and through us to make us more like Christ. So if you're looking at your Bibles, let's go to the next section of verses. It says this, in this you rejoice. So what is the in this? 
What is the in this rejoice? It's your salvation. So you're rejoicing in your salvation that has happened and that is coming. So you are rejoicing in that. But then as you rejoice in that, he's going to talk about the troubles you're experiencing right now. So right now as you are struggling, notice what he says. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So rejoice in your salvation. What God has done and what God is going to do, rejoice in that. Um, Even though right now it, it might be tough. You might be grieved by various trials. How many of you love trials? Anybody? You're like, man, I love when somebody calls and just chews me out, <laughs> lets me know this whole situation that I don't even know about, and now it's like, I got to deal with this. Like, oh, this is a great day. How many of you love when like work's just going good, and then that thing happens, and it's like now you just now you know about something you got to deal with, and it's like this huge thing, and man, there's like a trial that's happened now. Or all of a sudden, like, life's just good, like sunshine, and the next day it's like thunderstorms, everything's unraveling, so-and-so did this, and you did this, and life's just messy, and now you're going through a trial, now there's, there's suffering, maybe some persecution by a friend or loved one or work or wherever it is. Now there are, well, these things called various trials, and, and we're grieved by them. So Peter's writing to people who are being grieved by trials. There's things that are happening to them at work and life, and they're just tough. And so we're supposed to rejoice in the midst of our suffering. Well, that doesn't make sense. Like when I'm suffering, I don't think about rejoicing, right? I think about just like being mad. How many of you guys like, just like, no, this is like mad time. Like I want to be sad time. This is not happy time. I'm in a trial. This is not good. But Peter says rejoice even though, no, for a little while, it's not going to be forever, it's just for a little while, things are going to maybe get bad. So why do we rejoice? Notice the so that. Here's the reason. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. So, so a trial, there's a so that. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. So somehow a trial leads to tested genuineness of faith. So so how does our trial and suffering lead to a genuine faith that's been tested? Well, he gives us kind of this imagery of gold that's tested by fire. So so how exactly is gold tested by fire? Well, if if you dig for gold and you find some gold, it's not ever pure gold. It's always mixed with other materials and metals and dirt and sediment and sand. So what you have to do if you're a goldsmith is you have to take the gold that you found and you have to put it into a crucible. A crucible is um, an object that's going to hold the gold and it's also able to withstand a lot of fire, a lot of heat. And so you put the gold in there in the crucible and then you take the crucible and you put it in fire for like a long time and you heat it up really, really hot. And as the gold gets hot, it begins to melt. And as it melts and gets really, really hot, the impurities in that gold, they start to bubble up to the top. They come out, they're squeezed out of the gold, and the goldsmith can rake those impurities out. And what you're left with at the end of the process is pure gold. Not fool's gold, but pure gold. Gold that is pure and and undefiled and genuine and that can be sold and is precious and is great value. What's Peter trying to say? Hey, the trials in your life, the suffering in your life, they're like crucibles 
You know what they do when the heat turns up in your life, when suffering comes? It squeezes out of you those impurities, just like it does with gold. It it squeezes out of those things that are still in there that you don't even know about that should be out of there. Because what God wants is a genuine faith that follows and walks with him, that loves him, that is true to him. And it's only through suffering that those impurities come out. So Peter's saying, hey, rejoice in the trials, rejoice in the suffering, because God is doing something in the midst of those things. See, it's when the heat turns up that we find out who we are and how we need to deal with who we are so that we can become who God wants us to be. Like Saturday, I was a happy person. Like, I'm I'm happy. It's Saturday, right? Day off, I get to drive to Bowling Green to a basketball game. I get to watch my son play JV basketball. I'm a happy guy with friends. There's no anger in my heart whatsoever until the ref clearly called fouls on us and not on them. And I'm not, I don't know where this ref went to school, but he did not go to a good ref school because clearly we would, I mean, if anybody's at the game, you can testify. Like if we even breathe on them, foul. They could knock us across the gym and like, what? It's just basketball. So here I am, happy guy who about three or four plays in, I'm on courtside standing, yelling at probably a volunteer ref. Just like losing my mind at this ref. And I'm sure he's like, hey, I'm a volunteer JV Christian school ref. Like if I'm good, I would be somewhere else right now. Right? <laughs> but it's like, I'm just like, I'm angry now. It's like, I'm like, oh, why am I, oh, it's sad. Why am I angry? See, it takes a little, it, it's, it's, it's those little moments of heat. See, everything's good until the heat comes. And then heat often reveals those things in us that need to get out of us. And then God can get those things out and start dealing with us. But you know what we do? We praise God for those moments. Because in those moments, God shows us who we are and who we need to be. And we get to repent and we get to believe and we get to keep chasing after Jesus because he wants us to get through trials and through tribulations so that we have a genuine faith. So that it's not fool's gold, it's not false faith, that even our imperfections leads us back to the cross. And we cling to the cross and we hold to the cross. And the cross that is our crucible, we hold to it. And that molds and shapes us into the image of Christ. So we can rejoice even right now in our suffering. Because notice what's coming. So that we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that, so that at the end, that incoming, we might be found praise, glory, and honor. And I, th- I think it's hard to know like which way is this us or God? Are we getting praise, glory, and honor or is God getting praise, glory, and honor? I think it's a little bit of both. That is God's people collectively, there is praise, glory, and honor. Like, like we're here, we made it, we're, we're in the Lord. But also as God's people, we are ultimately praising God because he's the one that kept us there every step of the way. We are praising God and honoring God and giving glory to God because he is the good God who guarded and kept us every step of the way. See, you're Peter. He starts with worship, bless God. And he ends with, hey, praise be to God. That all the way through, what is our reaction in every moment of our life? We are to be the people that praise God. So I don't know what you're going through this week. I don't know what you will go through this week, but I promise you this, there will be moments where the heat will be turned up. There will be moments where you will not get your way and you'll have to deal with some things 
and you have some hurts and you have some hurt feelings, people say mean things about you, it is going to happen this week. You are going to feel the heat and the fire and that's what these people are going through. They are going through suffering and persecution and he's writing to these people to say, hey, in your suffering, remember what God has done. He has caused you to be reborn into a living hope through the resurrection. And remember what God will do. He's bringing you an inheritance, namely himself, that's undefiled, unchanging, unfading. It's kept in heaven. It's going to be delivered to you. God is the guard. God's got this. He is going to bring you your full and final salvation. And even right now, in the fire and in the heat, know that God is using the crucible to show that your faith is genuine. He's turning up the heat to get those things in you that shouldn't be, to get those things out so that you can be molded more and more into the image of Christ. So even in our suffering, we worship God for what he's done, for what he will do, but even right now today at what he is doing through the fires. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for just Jesus We thank you for the cross. And God, I pray this week as we are tried, as we go through suffering, and we deal with messy situations, I pray that our suffering would lead us to our Savior and that we would worship you. Because worship changes us, but it also keeps us. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. You're listening to audio from Hardin Baptist Church. For more audio content, For other information about our church, please visit hardenbaptist.org.